Cut, and this is The K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I produce and release music under the A.O.'s Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and my main interests are no-budget cinema, indie cinema, and 70s cinema. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale. I like lost films, international cinema, and the golden age of Hollywood. Hello there. This is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. Um, I love art house. I love international cinema as well. But I also love a little bit of everything in the middle. And it's that time again. I uh, thank you all for um, for tuning in. Uh, for our regulars, uh, all three of you, um, what you might have noticed is that we had a bit of a delay due to technical difficulties with our cinematic smorgasbord, but rest assured we are back. And if you missed us last week, we actually have a very interesting demo. So what the K-Cut sounded like before we fine-tuned everything and figured out what type of a show we really want to be like. So that's worth checking out as well. But since you're tuned in here, welcome. And if you're new to the K-Cut and the Cinematic Smorgasbord, what this is is uh, the K-Cut is a film podcast. We discuss all things film-related. And the Cinematic Smorgasbord is a monthly episode where we is a monthly series where we go into films that we have never seen before. Uh, in case you can tell by how we detailed the opening of this episode, we each have different tastes in cinema, but we do have a lot of um, a lot of crossover. So what we like to do is introduce films to each other that we have never seen before, and we report our findings. So in the first half, we will get into our individual assignments. In the second half of the episode. We do a bit of a collective pick where we invite you listeners at home to tune in as well. We watch a film that none of us have ever seen before. And this episode's film is Atlantic Rhapsody. So stay tuned if you want to find out more about this film. Um, Relatively unknown little picture. And uh, you get to see what we thought of it. So uh, before we do that, let's get into our individual assignment. So um, each of us recommended a film to the other co-host and we will find out how that went who wants to go first with their findings i can go Alrighty, what were you recommended and how did it go so andreas you recommended me tokyo story by yashijiro ozu Aww. and yeah i thought that it was a quite enjoyable film i think one thing i appreciate especially about just Eastern Asian media in general is they've somewhat mastered the slice of life storytelling to the point where I don't think anybody else could ever supersede them just because I think like just their culture and history is just like almost that of art itself. I will say though, if you're not into more dry, slower moving films, I'm not going to recommend it because this is definitely something that is really kind of more geared towards the cinephile type. And it's a fairly basic story. It's about an elderly couple who take a vacation and visit all their adult children and just kind of the stuff they do and their interactions with their children. And then at the core of it, uh, you find out that uh, one in particular person they visit is their daughter-in-law, who, despite uh, her husband being deceased, she definitely does all she can to help her uh, in-laws. And they even say towards the end that uh, she oftentimes does more for them and treats them better than their own biological children. And yeah, you know, I definitely, I think one thing I appreciated was not only how the story was put together, but also I think the way it was shot, it 
he allows scenes to breathe. Like they last just enough time to where you're not wanting more. And it's just enough to where it's not over long. So it's like, you know, it's kind of slow moving, but at the same time it is by design because you are just kind of like peering into the lives of people. And uh, I found it interesting that uh, apparently it, there wasn't much of a push to release it internationally because they considered it almost too Japanese for international audiences. And I can kind of understand why. It's actually funny, though, because it's loosely based on an American movie called Make Way for Tomorrow. <laughs> that's true. It is. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's not exactly the same story, but it's the basic concept of adult children being absolutely terrible to their parents. Yeah, actually, it's funny you bring that up because I believe you've actually written about that in your um, World of Movies column. Yes, I have. And... Uh, it spawned at least three or four remakes in several different countries. So it's clearly a story that um, resounds with a lot of people. I think what's very um, translatable, so Make Way for Tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, because I've only seen it the one time, it circles around the Great Depression era and it's supposed to evoke this idea of isolation in a time when there's like a big recession and you, you feel, again, uh, removed from society and completely defenseless. So I feel like Again, you can translate that to so many different things. And in Tokyo Story, what Yashijiro Ozu does, and he does this so often in his in his films, I do recommend checking out as many as you can, the ones that aren't lost anyway. He, uh, he looks and analyzes at family dynamics and uh, this obsession with marriage, uh, this obsession with having to be the ideal child or the ideal parent, uh, these pressures that a lot of people in family face where it actually ostracizes them or loved ones. And that's none more apparent than in, yeah, Tokyo Story, where instead of, you know, the Great Depression, what you have here is... Um, Again, uh, loved ones that are far removed from their children, despite everything that they've done for them. Yeah, exactly. I find it interesting. There was absolutely no camera movement, and that kind of threw me off. I was actually going to ask you about that. How did you find the static shots? Because if I'm not mistaken, there's only one pan, or at least only one pan in the entire film. And it's like savored, like, kind of in the first act, I think. There's not much movement at all, if, if any. I don't think there needed to be movement for this kind of story. Like the static shots of the characters, like any of the close-ups or just just the master shots. I think that actually worked for this because I don't really I'm not looking for like a tech heavy approach to a story that's simple. Because that would just be overdoing it. What I find with um Yashizuro Ozu, in case you didn't know this, a lot of Asian filmmakers, and I'm overgeneralizing because this includes Japanese, Chinese um, Korean, they, their sound, or sorry, their, yeah, their talkie era came later than most other countries. So like even in the, the mid to late thirties, they were still making silent pictures. And one such filmmaker is Yashishiro Ozu. And I feel like his filmmaking style is definitely one of the final remnants of the silent era where it's like these static shots but he he doesn't like rest on the ways of old he like completely rejuvenates what that could look like to the point that he's making these gorgeous family portraits or photographs of of you know scenery with these with these characters within these shots and something else that um is very film 101 and i'm pretty sure rachel you've probably heard this as well in in university um 
the fact that the camera is like kind of rested on the floor, so you feel like you're sitting with the family as they're as they're sitting upon the floor. Like you feel like you're invited into the home of this family. You can actually see the ceiling. Um, yeah, it's these interesting angles, still shots. Uh, not you're not gonna find many people, you know, from the I guess the 30s onwards tackling something like this. Yet yeah, this is something that Yashizura Ozu actually specialized in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, overall, I think it was. Uh, I think it's. I thought it was a really good film. I think if you're somebody who likes to kind of go back to the classic era of a lot of different international film or just cinema history in general, I definitely recommend it. Fantastic. Well. Um, Rachel, what about you? Uh, since that's what I recommended to James, what did he recommend you? Well, it's funny because James recommended me Following by Christopher Nolan, which I think was uh, late 90s. It was, was it his very first or one of his first? I think it was his very first film. It was the very first feature. Yes, yes. And so um, it's kind of, it's interesting because it's got all the trademarks of Christopher Nolan. It's got a weird plot and nonlinear time and tons of twists and turns. And... Um, a lot of the same techniques he usually uses, but it's also got this vintage vibe and uh, they really lean into the noir side of neo-noir. So I consider it a combination and there's a strong psychological element as well. So I thought of it as a combination of pie and the big sleep, basically. And you can tell, you can just tell that this man is waiting for a bigger budget to fully unleash his dreams. So much of his style is already there. And, um, it took him over a year to make, I think, because he wanted to eke as much perfection as possible out of the limited resources he had. Yeah, he also had to shoot it on weekends because everybody held day jobs. Yeah. So the premise is this guy um, in England starts following people around the city, and he doesn't mean them harm. He just kind of wants to know what they're doing, and he follows them around. And then he meets a man, a man who confronts him, but not in the way you might expect. And then I can't really reveal much more than that because it's a Nolan movie, and you know how that goes after that. Oh yeah, can't can't reveal too much because uh, that that the whole thing of the movie is like you're kind of like wanting to figure out what happens next, but there's all these twists and turns. Yeah, and uh, you rarely know quite where you stand. Oh yeah, well it's also interesting because um, what he did was uh, it's nonlinear. It's interesting that he took this approach because he literally just cut the me- the movie up into thirds and then intercut them. Yep, that sounds about right. So it obscures your point of view because you see shots of him like before things really get into motion and then shots after and you're kind of like, okay, what's going on here? And I'm glad you bring up Pi because these two movies actually hit the festival circuit in the same year. That's wild. You could walk into one theater and then walk into the next and not realize you walked into the wrong one. Well, also, um, because after after the festival circuit, it actually got picked up by Next Wave Films, which would become IFC Films. And uh, when I was reading the journal for Pi, apparently they wanted it also, but the deal didn't work out. So I was like, man, that's kind of interesting that both of these uh, would-be trailblazing filmmakers came out with these very esoteric debuts and got so much acclaim. Yeah, and thank goodness they did. And interestingly, both of those films, you can totally tell what these directors are going to be like in um, a few years, just with a little more time and a little more money, how much they're going to unleash. It's interesting. This is the third early movie by a very famous director that you have issued to me in this smorgasbord. There was Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench by Damien Chazelle. There was Pie by Aronofsky. And then this one. Yeah, I, I like to I like to throw these in because it's like, you know, you've seen the big movies, but, you know, uh, I like to show the smaller flicks to show where they started. So I was actually wondering, I actually particularly recommend this to you 
specifically because it leaned heavy into the film noir, but I also wanted to see what you thought about the acting because I thought, because they all come from theater and I thought it kind of had, it's almost like they plucked them out of the classic era and put them in a modern setting. Oh yeah, you could definitely tell they were sort of, I don't want to say hamming it up because I don't want to discredit all the older actors, but there is a more theatrical style and they were definitely working with that in a way they might not have in a more contemporary film. I'm, I'm quite sure that was deliberate. Yeah, and I don't think any of them really did much after that movie either. No, that's too bad. Yeah, because they're all... It's funny because the, the guy who plays the need, it's a Jeremy, I can't remember his last name, but it's almost like... um, Oh, I can't forget his name. The lead in Pi. It's like great performances, and then they just don't really... They're not interested in doing anything that big after. Exactly. Even though they give these masterful performances. Or there was Cannibal the Musical, where they literally just raided the students and staff of their college. Another one that can be that can be one of your themes, early early films by good filmmakers. Uh, oh, I also did El Mariachi by Robert Rodriguez. That was another. That's true. I, I sense a theme going on here. Yeah, I also uh, I also like his masterful use of black and white. Mm-hmm. That was the great choice. Also, this kind of sets the stage for Memento. Yeah, it's so much like Memento. Like if you like Memento, you would probably enjoy this movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those movies where you're not surprised that he's such a big success today. Yeah, so I thought it was a really good choice, and it, it kind of bridges all of our interests. Uh, Andres, did you get around to checking it out? I've seen it before. I actually watched it for the first time when I was doing all my decade research, because I realized, um, I was like, oh, I think this is the only Christopher Nolan film I haven't seen yet. Uh, so, on one hand, it's his worst film, but Wait, if really? this is somebody's worst film, you're doing really well. Like, I feel like for somebody's debut, this is actually quite great. Yeah, I'm not even sure worst is the something you can okay. to that, you know? Yeah, worst is the wrong word. Let's say the one that I like the least, but I still like it a hell of a lot, if that makes sense. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, like Nolan's filmography is pretty pretty bulletproof. And yeah, this is where it starts. The only reason why I would rank it so lowly, because I would say something like The Dark Knight Rises is a lot more flawed. Um, I would say this, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Rachel, when you said... You can tell that this is a filmmaker itching for more to work with. And yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's pretty much it. Otherwise, in terms of somebody who was just starting out, it's so creative, so imaginative, so it, it, it really tries to do a lot of things that, listen, and James, you probably know a lot about this because you study uh, shoestring budgets, all that stuff. To make a film about two people going on a date is hard enough to get the budgeting, the scheduling, writing it up, the production, the editing, especially if you have limited resources, to try and do something really kind of out there. I mean, hey, that's that's quite something else. So um, one final note, because uh, I, I sense a theme with James going on here, outside of the fact that... Uh, this guy really didn't do much afterwards, but I can only foresee him, uh, or you rather, James, uh, recommending Primer to Rachel one of these days. Uh, am, I, am I onto something? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that one's come up yet. No, it's not the pipeline. I try to mix it up every once in a while because like, I, I, I do things for specific reasons and I haven't quite found a reason to do Primer yet. Fair enough. But yeah, no, uh, you know, regardless of what I said, I still think Following is a great film. It just... Uh, yeah, wrong choice of words. It's it's my my it's the film I like of Nolan's the least, but um, it's I still really recommend it. 
and I still think it's like a great film. I don't think he's made a flat out bad film. No, not yet anyway. Yeah, so um, did you have to watch a movie this month? No. Anyway, that's the episode, folks. No, okay, so... Uh, no, okay, so... What's really kind of coincidental and borderline serendipitous is um, this episode got postponed due to technical difficulties, so we put up one of the demos that we did. And the demo's theme was, what is your favorite film in a genre you don't care for? And Rachel, you actually brought this film up, and I don't even think I had even heard of it when you brought yeah. it up. And this is our third week in the row that we're going to rag on Westerns, so I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> well, I don't know about rag on Westerns, but discuss Westerns. But if you want to rag on them, then, then I mean, uh, be my guest. Uh, but that film is Don Siegel's The Shootist. So, you know, on the topic of ragging on films, and I've brought this up before, and I'm not going to belabor the point uh when people ask am i uh john wayne person or clint eastwood person i'm 1000 percent a clint eastwood person the only john wayne film i would be like is a must watch is the searchers mm-hmm. um otherwise i would say eastwood wins every argument every single time so it's very interesting that you recommended to me the last film that john wayne ever did and unlike following where it's like a filmmaker first starting out, testing the water, seeing what they can do. The shootist was made in mind, or the shootist was made knowing that this would probably be the last thing John Wayne would ever be able to do. And uh, that was such the case because he did pass away shortly afterwards. Um, And this very much is a film about, um, you know, like a person from, from the Wild West kind of on their deathbed, reevaluating the situation where they stand in society and, yeah, what all of that looks like. So, uh, Rachel, why did you recommend it to me, especially because you don't really like Westerns? Well, first of all, it's very hard to find movies you haven't seen, so there's that. But uh, second, um, I just think it's interesting because there was so much subtext that went into the making of this film. I don't even think it's a particularly good film. Like, it's nice and everything. But... When you read into the history of all the actors, everyone involved with this movie, it's just fascinating how, how this was put together. And you've got all the thematic stuff of the story of this notorious Western guy um, about to die, and he eventually goes on one last mission, so to speak. But then you've got all these actors. You've got, like, little Ronnie Howard, who's Ron Howard slowly... He's now a young man. I can't remember when Happy Days was in relation to this, but he's becoming an adult actor and will eventually become a director. And he's playing a young man on the cusp of becoming an adult. You've got Lorne Bacall, who's the landlady, the widow. And of course, Lorne Bacall had a very good film career of her own, but she was probably most famous for being... Uh, Humphrey Bogart's uh, Mrs. And widow. And widow, yes. Yeah, and then you've got Jimmy Stewart, who appeared twice with John Wayne in other films, and they were memorably together in another deconstructed Western called... Uh, the better shot Liberty Valance, and he was more the voice of reason character, and he plays Wayne's doctor in this. So the ingredients and the way this is put together is just fascinating to me. Yeah, and you could tell that they had something similar in mind with Jimmy Stewart, because uh, even though he would live longer, um, his part in this film is very small. Yeah, and and he's clearly getting older and everything. Exactly. So it's almost like here's a buddy of John Wayne's. Um, Yeah, this was definitely written with a lot of metaphysical thought. And you could say the same thing about 
Lauren Bacall's role in the film as well. And then you got Ron Howard doing his best Robert Redford impression, which is like kind of interesting. Uh, like some like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid type of acting there, which uh, I think is a little amusing. I, I don't mean to rag on it. Uh, but you know, like this vital character who's obviously supposed to represent the next generation and this bitter chip on the shoulder of... It's interesting because... Um, John Wayne and so many of his films it's like gruff and the uh, I'm a real American type of person but in this film uh, dare I say it it's one of his nicer finer performances I think he ever did and then you have Ron Howard basically playing or it's as if he was inspired by like the outlaws of old like so many other you know, children growing up watching westerns, they want to be the tough guy you know that guy and in 1976 uh, by this point the greatest westerns by now were being made, especially the revisionist stuff, especially the spaghetti westerns. And this is like a classical western made with all that in hindsight, where it's like, well, I guess these days of the western are basically all but dead. So let's give it a send off. You know, it's not like what um, Eastwood would do with Unforgiven, where he basically killed it for good. Or what um, Kevin Costner did with Dances with Wolves, where he wanted to kind of bring it back to life. The shooters was supposed to be like a nice send-off to it, but it's obviously very self-aware. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you about Wayne. I think he gave a genuinely tender performance in this, and I'm not too great about him as an actor. I don't think he was particularly skilled as even classic actors go. But uh, it was he was good in this one. Yeah, I have to agree with John Wayne. Uh, I, I would never like go out of my way to watch a film because uh, you know he's in it. I just happen to like films that he's in. Like again, Liberty Valance is an example. The Searchers, uh, Stagecoach for you know the classic, the classic film. Um, but like, yeah, I never. I always found him kind of single note as an actor. Like again, this this rough around the edges type of guy, uh, and not with any sense of mystery like you would find with a lot of Eastwood's characters. So like, you can't compare. Eastwood's, you know, toughest nails guy and the good and bad and the ugly with Clint Eastwood's toughest nails guy and High Plains Drifter. They're both still very different people. With John Wayne, I never really found that to be the case. So to see him doing a Western type of role, but so differently, I was kind of taken aback. I was like, oh man, this is the same John Wayne? Okay. And it's funny because he's actually somewhat of a villain in the movie because he's been notorious and now he kind of just wants to be left alone. Yeah, to go back to the whole self-referential thing, they even, like, again, in mind, assuming that this would be the last thing John Wayne ever made, they basically give him, like, a like a compilation package at the start of the film, like this, uh, you know, this little um, celebration of who he was as a Western star to kind of prelude what would come next. Here he is as a geriatric kind of making his way back into the genre one last time. But again, very self-aware. James, did you see it? I did. And I thought it was really good. I, I thought it was interesting because it, it functions almost on two levels. The Shootus is almost like a Western version of Chinatown, where it's kind of a deconstruction of classic Western, much like Chinatown was a deconstruction of classic noir. But on the other hand, they also made Logan before Logan, where it's a send-off you know, it's it's John. You know, John Ford's like final hurrah in his Wayne. genre, where it was like, or yeah, John Wayne, but much like how it was, um, you know, the last Wolverine performance we got out of Hugh Jackman, and there's also kind of this dynamic with uh, Ron Howard's character of Gillum idolizing JB books and 
like towards the end he kind of realizes the like the way of the outlaw really isn't it and that was kind of books's point the whole time so when he has that final shootout scene it's like it's almost like he's trying to he's ending things on his own terms not only for himself but the, the era of the outlaw itself yeah it's an allergy that's what it is i mean what a way to go out though i mean end your career on with something like that i mean not not many people get to do that I never thought of comparing it to Logan, but that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess uh, to wrap things up from, from my end, um, I did like this quite a bit. I liked it more than I thought I would. Uh, having said that, in the same way that you're bringing up Logan, I have to bring up Unforgiven again, where it's like, uh, but then again, there's one advantage that the shootist has. But if you like the shootist and you can compare it to Chinatown, Unforgiven is that times a thousand and like the best version of this having said that unforgiven came out during a time when the westerns were all but dead outside of like dances with wolves and the occasional thing the shooters came out when people were still watching them or you know it was at the tail end of that era so it was still at least you know relevant as a genre let's say you know westerns are back in action now but there was a time where they just flat out you know barely existed in films so um outside of that advantage though i would say Unforgiven again, <laughs> one last time giving the win to Eastwood. But uh, as as a as a standalone film, the shootist is actually quite good, uh, quite heartfelt, quite harrowing at times. I, I I liked it quite a bit. That's good. I'm glad. Fantastic. Now for our collective, sorry. Now for our collective pick, we're gonna get into a film which is uh, not like any of the above at all. Uh, so Rachel, you actually picked the collective pick this this month. And why did you go with Atlantic Rhapsody and what's what's the deal? I stumbled across it in a Wikipedia article. <laughs> and uh, it was the first film ever made in the Faroe Islands by Katrin Ota's daughter. And it's called um, Atlantic Rhapsody in English. And the title in Faroese loosely translates to 52 short stories or something in Haven or Torshaven, which is the capital of, of the Faroe Islands. Uh, the Faroes are... A, series of islands between Denmark and Iceland. They're technically under Danish control, but they're very much their own culture and have a distinct language and everything. So this is sort of a relay race of stories within Torshavn um, over the course of a day, roughly. And so you get all these little glimpses into what life is like in the Faroe Islands. Yeah, and it's interesting because if this is like the first message that one may ever receive from the Faroe Islands. Um, it's as if the filmmaker basically said, you haven't heard anything from here before. Let's give you everything and yeah. really immerse you into the, uh, into the life of everything. So I, I can only, even though there's not a lot of similarities at all, there is something about this film that reminds me a little bit of like, let's say, um, uh, the works of search of, uh, of Vertov and like Man of the Movie Camera, where it's like, mm-hmm. I want to show you my homeland, but instead of, you know, this uh, beautification of, you know, one's surroundings, this is more a celebration of the actual people themselves. And you get everything from like little shorts to like an actual, like, you know, giving birth on screen and like all the, all the little details. Like nothing gets left out of this at all. Yeah, it's I, the closest comparison I can make is 22 short films about Springfield, the Simpsons episode. If anybody at home is picturing that, that, that is the closest comparison I can make in terms of plot. 
Don't get me started. I'm going to recite all of Steam Hams. I'm not going to do it. But in that same breath, it, you know, that's also an homage to that um, Glenn Gould Canadian film. You know, the... Uh... Yes, I don't remember when that came out. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, interesting. And so it'll be like... Um, a pretty girl's walking down the street and a man leans out a window and whistles at her. And then he goes into his house and tells his daughter to go to the store and get cigarettes. And then she goes to the store and we follow the people in the store. And it goes on like that for just over an hour. Yeah, it's not very long at all, but you get so many little things. So like, um, as all three of us can attest, uh, cause we do the short films that are nominated every year at the Academy Awards, um, I don't know if you've done this, James, but in Canada, we can actually watch them all in one sitting at these Academy screenings at the show downtown. And, it, you know, they could be like two hours or sometimes three hours, but because they're cut up into shorts, they just kind of zip by. So even though this is already a short film, because there's so much kind of going on and it's all streamlined in such a fluid way, it felt like it was like half an hour. I was like, oh, damn, this thing's already done. <laughs> it was it was like just <laughs> Wow. <laughs> And it gets kind of dark and surreal towards the end, too. That was the thing that got me, because this whole thing was just a wild ride, and then it just started getting really weird. I'm like, what am I watching? Like, it was trying to do, like, the genre thing at certain points, and I was like, what? But also, isn't it, because I read it, isn't it considered a documentary? Uh, I think in the same way my Winnipeg's a documentary. Okay, because I'd read that, I was like, wait, I was like, how is this a documentary? And then I was just, yeah, it just... I don't know, it was it was really crazy keeping up because like you said it's like you'll have one thing happen for like a minute and a half and then it trails off with this other character they connect with another character and then there's a what was it, the police chase that seemed to go nowhere yes <laughs> I was like what they they really they wanted to show the Faroe Islands and they did it yeah it was a wild ride my favorite scene was the funeral play or the playground funeral I couldn't stop laughing oh, oh that was goodness. funny. Yeah. Just so, just so out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if people haven't watched it by now, but if you haven't kept up with your smorgasbord homework, then it is on Vimeo. Yes. Just don't make the mistake of renting the Danish language one unless you speak Danish. <laughs> yes, I was actually waiting for that precaution because I almost did make that error and I would have uh, would have spent money on something that I can't even understand. So uh, thank you for, uh, for warning me on that front. Yeah, um... Any additional thoughts on Atlantic Rhapsody before we uh, we Rhapsody everything up here? That was the worst pun I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, James, you can cut that out. <laughs> Keep it in, James. <laughs> uh, I think the only thing I really have to say, if you have a short attention span, you might enjoy this because there's just so many different things that happen. Yeah, I found it fun to watch, like genuinely fun. Or at least, like, intriguing. And, you know, there's always something happening or about to happen. So you kind of sit around and wait to see what's going to happen next. Yeah, absolutely. Okie dokie. So, um, those were the picks for this month. Now we're going to get into the picks for August. But before we do that, uh, in case I haven't lost our uh, soul two listeners with the worst joke of the year. And that's saying a lot. Um, Rachel, where can our listeners find us? Uh, so we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under the K-Cut, and uh, we like to post little tidbits about social media and stuff like Or Okay, let me start that over. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. We like to post little tidbits about film, and come check us out. Amazing. Alrighty, so uh, usually in our episodes, what we will do is a random weekly recommendation. We just kind of just, you know, 
recommend a film off the top of our heads, but because it's the smorgasbord, we're actually going to just recommend the films that we have to watch for the month of August. So, um, who wants to find out what they're going to be watching first? Me. Okay, James, have you seen Bicycle Thieves from 1948? I think. I have not, but I've been meaning to watch it. Okay, well, that's perfect, because I am assigning that to you, and I hope you enjoy it. Awesome. That is a brilliant pick because uh, for listeners at home, James is obsessed with indie cinema, low budget, and that sort of stuff. The Italian neorealist movement was indie cinema before it was cool. Exactly. It takes pride in using non-professional actors to get across very poignant, significant political commentary. And Bicycle Thieves is probably the best example of this you're going to find. So I think this is right up your alley, James. Awesome. I always see it on lists when it comes to like no budget stuff. And I'm just like, I got to sit down and watch it. Yeah, I think you'll you'll enjoy it. And one of these days I'll assign you the Jamaican remake too. Ooh. Is it Jamaican remake? Well, loose remake, kind of like the way Tokyo Story was for Make Way for Tomorrow. It's kind of a reggae concert film and also the story of bicycle themes all in one. It was in the World of Movies column. Oh, okay. I'm starting to vaguely remember that now that you brought up the uh, the concert side of things. So, yeah, I guess since James is gone, what am I getting? Okay, so how familiar are you with Louis Buñuel? Uh, reasonably. Okay, so when a lot of people think of his silent stuff, they would always bring up uh, Oceano de Luke because of Salvador Dali, and it's arguably his most well-known film, because even if you don't know Buñuel, you probably know this film. You've probably seen it if you've taken a film class. Oh, yeah, exactly, especially because it's so short, you can kind of just cram it in there. No, no, no harm, no done. Sorry, no hard foul. So, uh, what I'm going to recommend instead is uh, Lodge Door, which is a 1930 film. It's uh, Buñuel by himself. And it was basically his way of saying, hey, all that stuff in Ancien Andalou, that was entirely me, and this is what I've got to show for it. It was the last film of note that he made for a number of years before he would come back with a vengeance. So, take for that what you will. You're going to watch 1930s uh, Lodge Door. I'm looking forward to it. That's one I never got around to, so perfect. It's uh, strange, but it's Louis Buñuel, so I'm I'm sure you're used to that by now, unfortunately, thanks to yours truly. Um, alrighty, what am I going to watch? So I'm going to give you Schizopolis by Steven Soderbergh. Okie dokie. You know what? It sounds weird because I've seen a lot of his films, but I've always wanted to check out more, I guess, because he has so damn many. So that is that sounds really good to me. Yeah, it's uh, one of the five commercial failures that he made after Sexualized Videotape. Wow. Yeah, in a row. Like, five in a row before he got, like, commercial success again. Outside of uh, Sexualized Videotape, which is a masterpiece, I'm not very familiar with his early stuff at all. So this will help cure that, cure that itch that I have. Yeah, he also stars in it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's really interesting. Okay, uh, well, I actually did not know that, because uh, I, I do know that he's very hands-on with his films. He'll edit them, he'll shoot them, um, but I didn't, I didn't know that he actually was starring in them as well. Oh, no, this is just the only one he starred in. Oh, yeah, but still, the fact that it even happened, it, now I'm very interested. <laughs> okay, so those are our three recommendations. Now we have one more, so I'm doing the collective pick this time around. And you know what I've realized? Um, when it comes to collective picks, we haven't really touched any animated films, have we? No, not yet. So, um, we I think it's safe to say on this pod that we like Studio Ghibli, correct? 
We do. Okay, so this isn't a Miyazaki film, but this is one that I haven't seen. I'm hoping neither of you have either. Um, it's short and sweet. It's uh, quite intriguing. Have either of you seen The Cat Returns? No. No, but I've been actually considering watching it because I saw it pop up somewhere and it, uh, I've seen like a clip of it. I think it's actually... Because over here in the States, I don't know if you see over here, we do a Ghibli Fest and they it's a period where like every year they show them in theaters and i think that's actually coming to theaters here oh my god road trip to visit james andreas <laughs> sounds good so we could all watch it at once i'm not gonna lie i was actually considering doing this for a future collective pick the cat really? returns yeah oh my god because <laughs> I, I wanted to do it i wanted to do an animated one specifically like a japanese animated one i was like hmm maybe this one great mind something something Oh, uh, well, I don't know how that happened, but I'm, uh, I'm very pleased. So <laughs> now you got more work to do, James, because you're up next, I think. So you're gonna have to figure out another film. Sorry, man. <laughs> oh, wait, no, this one already happened. It was playing June 26th and 27th. Ah, uh, darn. Well, uh, in case I haven't said enough, uh, you know, I haven't made enough awful jokes, uh, Hopefully one day the cat returns will return. So uh, until then, uh, that was the K-Cut. If uh, you're still listening, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, tune into the next episode and see what we've got. But otherwise, if you want to check out the next Smorgasbord, it's going to be the first Tuesday of next month. So that will be August uh, August the 2nd, actually. So And don't mistakenly watch the National Film Board short The Cat Came Back the very next day. I mean, you could, but you would still need to watch you the cat. You missed returns. out on the, on the Ghibli. <laughs> yeah, luckily the most short. You could do like a, like an hour and a half double feature, I guess. I don't know. Oh, totally. <laughs> Not bad. Um, that was the K-Cut. Now we're going into the L-Cut. Bye.